Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 45 and 46, which begin with Helen breaking the Mariner out of his cage. He's coming out of his cage and he's feeling just fine, gotta gotta be down because he wants it all. And they end with the trimaran moving towards the atoll gates. This, this two minute chunk contains one of my favorite moments of the whole movie. Okay. The moment when he, <laughs> it's the moment when he jumps into the clean water and gets to wash all the gunk off of himself. <laughs> <laughs> and the water is a beautiful shade of blue. Mm-hmm. Now, this is still the physical model out in the Pacific Ocean, correct? Yep. All of this is actual Pacific Ocean water. It's so blue and inviting. It's lovely. It is. And he gets to dive into it and yeah. be clean. I'm so happy. I'm happy because we get this awesome shot right at the top of the clip where Helen breaks the cage open. The Mariner finally gets a chance to climb out. And it's revealed in this wide shot that Helen has dropped some sort of board or platform to the edge of the cage. Oh, that makes so much sense. That's what she's been standing on. And Helen and Enola have the good sense to stay low because bullets are flying everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the Mariner steps out onto the walkway full height. Yep. Just out in the open, pretty as you please. It's a good thing for him that he doesn't get shot this time around. (laughs) And you get the visual of him with a giant fire behind him. Something about people standing in front of fire is pretty cool looking. It is. Fire does make a very dramatic backdrop outlines people well especially in this world that aside from the bog is very monochromatic Mm -hmm. which can be grating there's a lot of color in these initial shots because you've got the intense orange of the fire you've got the green of the growing plants it's a lovely blue sky Mm -hmm. and then everything else is gray and brown yeah but the color really dominates here It really pushes out all of that dullness. And the main thing that the Mariner is concerned with is the gate. It is still closed because in the middle of a siege, you don't open the gate to the bad people. Yeah. So he immediately takes charge of the situation, assigns Helen and Enola to open the gate. I love their willingness to just do it. They don't complain about separating from him. They don't ask how on earth am I supposed to accomplish that? They just go. It's very teamwork. Mm -hmm. And I like it. And so we finally get to your favorite part of this attack. The Mariner dives into the water. We get a quick cut of the Trimaran, which still has people crawling all over it. People just can't leave well enough alone. And then we get an overhead shot of the Mariner swimming underwater. And he is moving at incredible speed. Mm -hmm. Only kicking his feet... Every so often. He's not kicking them like a madman like you would assume he would have to do if he wanted to achieve these speeds. The way they did this is they had a cable under the water. I'm assuming this is Norman Howell under here. That he just holds on to the cable and that's what gives him the speed. Yeah, that totally is exactly what it looks like is happening. It doesn't look natural in any way. It absolutely looks like he is being pulled by a rope. I'm not quite sure what they're using in the shot where 
we've seen the high angle of the back of the trimaran we've seen the pov shot underwater and then it shows the jet skis cutting the wakes on the surface while he's swimming underneath there's some final kicks of speed and i don't know if there was a cable there that they cut out or if that was just norman howell kicking like a madman to try and get some speed but eventually they just rocket the mariner up out of the water and he lands on his boat yeah this is a moment that critics of the movie cite as something that is ridiculous and therefore the movie is ridiculous which is entirely unfair because he is not human you can't expect him to behave like a human it is ridiculous this, but it's the kind of ridiculous that I show up for. Right. This leap out of the water that defies the laws of physics. But it's certainly not so ridiculous that the entire movie deserves to be discounted for it. Yeah. A lot of people do that. You know what's equally ridiculous as this surging jump out of the water? How there just so happens to be, right next to where he lands, one of those bent up ski poles that he's able to reach over and grab and use to whip this smoker across the face and that it actually does anything other than annoy the smoker. <laughs> right, right. Well, <laughs> the fact that he leapt up in such a spot that he had a weapon readily available didn't surprise me at all. We've talked at length about how this boat is customized specifically for him. Mm. So... It made sense to me that he would put himself on the boat in a place that he had access to a weapon. Now, you are absolutely right about the ski pole like really being enough to throw this man from the boat. Enough to like cut open his cheek? Fine. But to actually push him from the boat? No, that's not enough. It's the sort of situation where the henchman has received damage in some way and it blinks him out of existence because this smoker never causes trouble for him again yeah and we go from that to a shot of a jet skiing smoker he's across the atoll and the mariner looks down at a cable at his feet attached to the winch at the back of the boat and the smoker that we were just talking about is unconscious on the deck because of course he would be mm -hmm. but the mariner picks up this cable and he starts to pull it taut and you can see the cable in the shot of the smoker going around the edge of the atoll, just shooting people, it's rising up out of the water. And there's a lot of conversation about where the cable being attached to the other end of the lagoon, where does that happen? Because we follow the mariner very closely on his journey. He leaps off the trimaran, he takes his dirt, and he goes to the banker. So when did he have time to connect his boat especially the winch at the back of the boat, to the other end of the atoll. It needs to be there so that he can pull out from the dock under his own power. Apparently, his trawling motor doesn't have a reverse. Yeah. And if that's the purpose of the cable being attached in such a way, the atollers have had quite some time with the boat. Mm -hmm. So if they wanted to extend this cable in such a way, they had time to do it. It could have been them. But... To what purpose? Yeah, Why would they have wanted to do it? Because the Mariners don't have an intimate knowledge of this boat. So they wouldn't think, oh, there's a winch here. Let's attach it to the other end of the lagoon. Because they don't know how the winch works. They don't know the series of levers to throw. So it would have to be something that the Mariner told them to do. I can only assume, because there's no definitive say either way, that somewhere between him and 
telling the boys on the dock that they each get a mirror if everything's there when he gets back and him arriving at the bank that he told another atoller on the docks, hey, grab the winch from the back of my boat, tie it off on the other end of the lagoon. And they never undid it. That's something that would be done as he wants to leave, right? Because it seems undesirable to just have this cable crossing the lagoon for any real length of time. Yeah. I'm also surprised that this cable has been crossing the lagoon this whole time with people landing in the water and jet skis going back and forth and it's never caused a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the benefit of using jet skis is there's no props. This is very true. They won't get tangled. They'll just glide right over it. We were watching the Grand Tour on Amazon and they did a special where they brought boats to, I think it was Vietnam. Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. And one of them had a jet boat like used back in the Vietnam War. They had to like build it special because they couldn't find an original one. But because it didn't have props, it wasn't getting tangled up in netting or anything like that. No, the problem I see with the jet skis is not getting tangled up in its props that it doesn't have is that when the nose of the jet ski is approaching the cable, the cable is going to either have to go under it or over it. Yeah. If it goes under it, fine. If it goes over it, you're going to have a problem. Looking at this cable, it seemed to be floating on the surface, if not a little bit underneath. So when yeah. the mariner is picking up, then it is rising above the water because he's able to pull on this cord and literally clothesline the smoker right off the jet ski. I still stand that this was a danger the whole time. Okay, I won't fight you on that, especially because the mariner, he's able to throw a couple of levers and that winch starts pulling up. So now that rope is completely up out of the water and now it will pose a hazard to anybody trying to jet ski around behind it. But that's probably a feature more than a bug at this point. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, he clotheslined the one guy, and if other people aren't paying attention, same thing's going to happen to them, and that's a passive move on the Mariner's part. Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to actually do anything. What's really tough to watch, because I know that ropes are a premium in this world, is how he has to run to each of the cleats and lop off the cord that's attaching him to the dock. And I'm like, oh, that's such a shame that he doesn't have the time to untie the knots and preserve the rope. Yeah, it is a shame. It reminds me of all of those depictions in movies of catapults being ratcheted back into firing position and they're held in place by a single rope. And so a guy takes a sword and he cuts the rope and that lets the catapult fling its payload well it's like congratulations moron how are you going to ratchet the catapult back into firing position right with a new piece of rope yeah and that's just wasteful and a pain in the butt like sure it looks cool cutting the rope but you know what else looks cool pulling a lever <laughs> <laughs> like seriously come on dude from movies however many decades ago that we have <laughs> no sway over while he is going from rope to rope cutting it we're getting some glimpses of things that are happening around him mm -hmm. something very interesting that i'm really really happy that we saw we see the enforcer coming out of the doorway on a boat with a child in his arms my assumption is that is his child i think it's perfectly plausible that he is rescuing a child that i am fine with that but i love the idea that that is his home and he is rescuing his child. It really worries you, though. We've gotten to the point where 
the enforcer, the tough guy on the atoll, has decided, okay, it's time for me to stop actively fighting, and it's time for me to start saving my family. Right. <laughs> it does not bode well for the atoll, and rightfully so. I'm not completely convinced that this is his kid because of stuff that happens later on in the movie. It could just be that he is rescuing an atoll child. But if it was not his kid and he was just trying to save everybody he could, that would definitely be more in line with his job as the atoll protector. I like the narrative of it being his family because I like the story of this man and his family who have a boat and he has a certain set of skills that he markets and he was hired. So he brought his family with him, of course, and he is here with his family doing a job. Mm -hmm. I know I'm jumping ahead in the movie, but I want him to not have a family because of where he's at at the end of the movie where he's on dry land and no one else except for Enola and Helen and Gregor. But if he had a family that was just elsewhere, he didn't have any indication at the end of the movie that he was going to leave dry land and go get people. Right. So if we do go with this narrative of he is at the atoll with his family, well, that means his family dies Yeah. because they are not on dry land with him. They die or get left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's sad. Because but... if he had a family, then he would tell Gregor at the end of the movie, like I said, I hate jumping forward, but he would have told them, hey, let's turn around and go get my family yeah. <laughs> instead of just drifting on the winds. Anyway, this kid here, I do not believe it is the braided hair boy from early in the movie. The one that said, I can't find my dad. I don't think it's that kid. I think it's a different little blonde haired child. I agree. In a bit of a surprising move, the... Mariner sacrifices a weapon mm -hmm. to throw it at a smoker who is also on the boat and is about to attack the enforcer and the child. Yeah, it's an interesting move because the Mariner up to this point has shown zero indication of being willing to stick his neck out for anybody else. He is not even willing to buy someone a cup of water. Yeah, we did have. The interaction a few minutes ago of when the fighting was just getting started, the Mariner called out to the Enforcer and says, hey, if you let me out, I will fight for you. And the Enforcer doesn't even react to mm -hmm. it as if he didn't hear it. So it's quite possible that the Mariner is taking this moment and it's worth the sacrifice of the knife to him to show the Enforcer that one, I got out. Two, I am fighting for you. Three, I'm only going to do it this once. The rest is all for me. Everybody gets one. Kind of in a spiteful way. So he's saving someone's life out of spite. Yes. Okay. Said, hey, if you had let me go, you would have gotten more than one out of me. <laughs> but you didn't. Yeah. I like how the enforcer, he sees the dead smoker fall over and he looks up. And when we see the Mariner, he's swinging on a rope to get to the stern of the ship. He's just swinging like, yeah, see, that's what I could have been doing this whole time. Just yeah, like you said. Yeah, it was very pointed. Doing it at the end of the rope is just a stylish way to do it, I guess. <laughs> that whole thing was very stylish and very cool. Yeah. We catch up with Helen and Enola. They are running along the atoll. And the Mariner, still backing up his boat, sees them and he shouts, hurry up. 
not that they have a choice, but they are going the long way around. The atoll is not a convenient place to traverse. Never mind all of the stuff that's going on. That walkways are probably destroyed. That there are smokers in the way that they need to either fight or avoid. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy journey <laughs> for Helen and Enola. Meanwhile, on the gas barge, we've got Deacon. He's sitting there and he shouts for the kamikaze to come on. Kamikaze, literally meaning divine wind or spirit wind, officially kamikaze shinpu kokubetsu kogekitai, or divine wind special attack unit, were a part of the Japanese special attack units of military aviators who flew suicide attacks for the Empire of Japan against allied naval vessels in the closing stages of the Pacific campaign of World War II intending to destroy warships more effectively than with conventional air attacks. About 3,800 kamikaze pilots died during the war, and more than 7,000 naval personnel were killed by kamikaze attacks. In this movie, we see that the kamikaze is an explosive-laden boat with big old spikes and barbs on the front of it, piloted by a single smoker. I think this is another case of the Deacon seeing something from the past in some media, Mm -hmm. and not really understanding what it is. Like the phrase kamikaze is just passed down from generation to generation. It's more colloquial now than what it actually means, which is honestly how we treat the word now. Mm -hmm. You have to wonder, does he wait to deploy the kamikaze boat until after the Hellfire gun has put all of these holes in the wall so that way the hole is weaker? Or does he use it because it has taken so long to grasp control of the atoll hmm i like the idea of it being purposeful Mm -hmm. like the first phase is to poke all the holes to weaken the area because we get a couple of shots where we see more of the atoll and you can see there is a definite line of this section is riddled with holes This section is not riddled with holes. Mm -hmm. They aimed at a specific section. So I think step one, riddle it with holes, break it down. Step two, kamikaze it. I imagine that there is a reason behind the progression of this smoker attack. Phase one, you surround the atoll. And at that point, the atoll has the ability to surrender because they are surrounded. Phase two, you bring in the hellfire gun and you spray a bunch of holes in the wall. At that point, the atoll has the opportunity to surrender because you have superior firepower. If they hold out, well, bring in the plane. You have the dudes jump off the ramps, get into the atoll, start killing people inside. The atoll has an opportunity to surrender there. We are now on, what did I count? Three. So this is the fourth opportunity for them to surrender. They're going to blow a hole in the side of the wall. If they don't give up at that point, well, they've got a bunch of dudes waiting to go in on foot and just clear the place out. So the boat rams into the wall, and we get a lovely explosion, particularly like the interior shots, Mm -hmm. where we can see staircases and walkways all engulfed in flame. It's very cool. It is. And I know the old adage is, cool guys don't look at explosions, and I guess the Mariner doesn't count as a cool guy, because he totally looks at this explosion. (laughs) Well, he makes up for it. By while he is looking at the explosion and being concerned about what's going on, of ducking for the boom without looking, which is phenomenal. I love it so much. He switched his trimaran from trawling to sailing mode, 
and as usual the exact order of the shots is incorrect like the jib gets pulled down and at the corner of the shot you can see that the boom is already out and then they show the boom rising up and it's all out of sorts but you know it's all happening so quick it's an action scene don't worry about it (laughs) but i love how the mariner is so intrinsically connected to his trimaran that he ducks he doesn't have to look it's not like he necessarily hears it coming he just knows yeah he knows the timing he knows the feel could even be the vibrations Mm -hmm. that he knows okay it's swinging now it's time for me to duck and it's such an easy little whoop that he ducks and then it passes right over his head it's very nifty I, i very much enjoy it Another thing that I really enjoy is after the explosion, we get a close-up on Deacon, and he's sitting here, and he's like, that made a hole. And I'm like, yes, it did. It absolutely did. And I don't know where all of these smokers were that are suddenly surging through this new opening in the wall, but holy cow, there are a lot of them. Yeah, I'm not really sure where they came from either, unless there is some passage of time of... A few minutes, maybe, where smokers who were positioned outside could have a chance to get close enough on their vehicles and board the atoll, which that's the sort of thing you can only do like one at a time sort of thing. Mm. So is there a barge with just people on it that was able to pull close? That sounds more plausible, frankly. Yeah, there appears to be through the smoke and crowds and everything one of the gunboats drawing close by and there are dudes on it and it could be that that is a landing craft that they had in the wings waiting to move in because not everybody gets a jet ski no no some people have to be foot soldiers Mm -hmm. and the deacon's army so far has been very well organized very well organized so no reason for that to stop now Mm mm-hmm I think it's important here at the tail end of this clip that we get the shot of the massive atollers on the walkway and they are fighting back against the smokers. There's a group of like seven or eight of them and they're pressing up against this very narrow spot against a structure and they are not giving up. That yes, a lot has happened. There have been explosions and people flying over the walls And these people are still fighting for their life because they know that the smokers don't take prisoners like the slavers do. Mm -hmm. You might as well keep fighting because you're dead either way. Yeah, no one is coming to save you. It's a very grim thought for sure. But then again, that's how it is when it comes to these raiders is like they don't leave survivors. They don't leave stuff behind. And that's. An essential element to a post-apocalyptic setting. One thing that society provides for us is that somebody will come and help you. That the community will band together to save one of the community. You can call the fire department. You can call the police department. And they will come save you. That is part of the idea of society. It's a nice idea. In a post-apocalyptic setting, those elements are gone. Mm -hmm. I just realized something. This situation that the Atollers are experiencing is what the Lord Humongous was threatening the compound with. Because the Humongous never got beyond siege mode. He surrounded the compound with his dudes, kept a close eye on it, and kept making demands. He never got to the point where 
he was assaulting the compound like this. In hindsight, and taking the deacon as an example, I think the Lord Humongous would have benefited from a kamikaze car Mm -hmm. to ram it into the bus, explode the bus, and be able to gain entry. I suppose that wasn't really on the table because the compound in and of itself is an oil refinery. (laughs) Not wanting to cause too many explosions near an oil refining facility is probably the number one thing that saved Papagallo and his people. I absolutely agree. And also, Humongous, his army was not organized. It was a loose gathering of other factions. Mm -hmm. So as we've been discussing this attack, the deacon's real strength is that he had a plan. Yeah. And everybody was on board with that plan. And there was an order to it. They had strategy. And Humongous didn't have a strategy. I'm trying to think back to the antagonists that we've had in these previous Mad Max movies. And I want to try to rank them on a loosely defined criteria that I'm just thinking of in my head, where based on the resources that they had, as far as waging war were concerned, and the type of forces that they had at their disposal, I think Auntie Entity is probably the weakest because she just had her guards in the city, which, sure, they had uniforms, but they were working a job. So she's probably the weakest overall. I don't think you can necessarily say that her whipping up the residents of Bartertown to help her do something necessarily constitutes an army. No. And the reason I put the toe cutter ahead of Auntie Entity is because the members of his gang were loyal to him. He was very chaotic, but there was an element of loyalty. Mm-hmm. He had his lieutenants. He had those other bikers that we see in the initial Kloon scene <laughs> and then never come back for the rest of the movie. Yeah. And that's something that with Humongous is questionable. He has followers, but are they really loyal to him or are they loyal to their own factions? Yeah. The reason that I rank Humongous above the Toe Cutter is because he had multiple gangs. Yes. (laughs) It wasn't just the one. Yeah. He had the Gay Boy Berserkers and the Bad Cops and the Smegma Crazies, and they were all together in this war band. So that's definitely more muscle to throw around. And I slot the deacon in between Humongous and Immortan Joe because the deacon has a very large army of smokers. He has a lot of cool things like the Hellfire gunboat and the D's as a moving base of operations. But if you put the smokers up against the war boys, I'm pretty sure the war boys would win. Okay, so I think they each have different strengths and it's a question as to which strength would win out in the end. The deacon has strategy mm-hmm. on his side. He has a variety of ways to attack, and he employs those very intelligently. And his goal is met. His goal is to attack this atoll and to destroy it. Well, he does mm-hmm. pretty handily. What Immortan Joe has for strength is loyalty and devotion. That his war boys, while skilled and have their specific things that they are good at, are willing to die for him, even if they don't have to. Mm -hmm. They'll kind of go out of their way to die for him. But when they're making an attack on the war rig, they never succeed. So as far as 
the record goes, I think Deacon's Army is the best. But I think it's hard to judge a Morton Joe's Army based on how they did against the war rig, because not only did they initially have to fight the buzzards, which they won against the buzzards. They did. But they also had to contend with the power of nature. <laughs> yes. Um, I think when you're driving headlong into a gigantic nuclear storm, sandstorm, tornado hellscape, <laughs> you're allowed to not succeed in that initial thing. At the end of the day, Furiosa and Max had to employ a lot of strategy to get around Immortan Joe and his armies. And you could argue that they survived by the skin of their teeth. And not everybody got out of that attack alive. That's true. And that is comparable to the Atoll, where, yeah, the Atoll was destroyed. The Deacon was successful in his attack, but not everybody died. There was two parties, three parties, I should say, that escaped mm -hmm. and were able to regroup and accomplish the end goal of the movie anyways, which is very similar to Fury Road. It's interesting, though, because if you say, oh, who would win Deacon versus Immortan Joe plus their armies? It's like, well, the Deacon is effective on water and Immortan Joe is very effective on land. And you swap the settings for either of those. And it doesn't work. You put Immortan Joe and his armies on a bunch of boats. They're not going to do as well as if they were on land and vice versa. <laughs> If you put Deacon on land, you swap out the jet skis for motorcycles, you swap out the attack boats for cars, and the larger vehicles would probably just be tanks. Yeah. Some sort of heavy military vehicle. Doubled up, tripled up cars. Yeah. I'm more willing to put Immortan Joe at the top of the list as far as power level hierarchies are concerned. I think I do agree with you on that. We'll have to be satisfied with that because never the twain shall meet. You've got to give it up to the Atollers. They are fighting for their lives. It's not going to do them a ton of good in the long run, but they are trying. The Mariner is done. His backing up. He is ready to start sailing forward. Somehow he has disconnected the winch from the thing. And the very last image that we have in this clip is the Priam standing atop the Atoll wall. And that's where it cuts off. So... When we come back next time, we will see Nord leading the charge of smokers through the hole in the wall. An errant jet ski will cause trouble for Helen and Enola, and Enola will help Mariner open the gate. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 23. See you next time. 